You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Tell me about your job. What does an anesthesiologist do? So a lot of people think uh, anesthesiologists are mainly in the OR. We actually do a lot of care uh, for patients that are also in the critical care units um, around the hospital. So because we are experts in ventilation in the operating room, that easily translates to ventilation in the ICU. So that's why it's very relevant to this COVID-19 crisis. Okay, so... Are you saying that as an anesthesiologist, you're actually helping people breathe right now? We are. Uh, My name is Richard Boyer. I'm a a fourth-year anesthesiology resident from Massachusetts General Hospital. So how important are ventilators to your work? Ventilators are critical to my work. I'm intubating patients multiple times a day and using ventilators probably between five and eight hours a day to provide mechanical ventilation to patients. In intubation, we provide a protected airway. So what we basically do is take a tube and we place it into the trachea, which is the main airway that leads to the lungs. How does it make you feel that you're having to help ventilate patients for hours every day because of this pandemic? When we see patients being intubated that are otherwise healthy and young because of a viral pneumonia, that's very concerning. It sounds like you're worried. I think everyone's worried right now. And the thing he's worried about, the fact that COVID-19 patients who get hospitalized often need ventilators to stay alive, that's a countrywide problem. Because if estimates are correct, the U.S. is going to run out of ventilators soon. FEMA says we're sending 400 ventilators. Really? What am I going to, what am I going to do with 400 ventilators when I need 30,000? You pick the 26,000 people who are going to die because you only sent 400 ventilators. Today on the show, why the ventilator supply is such a problem and how people like Dr. Boyer are trying to fix it. I'm Ariel Dimros. This is Reset. We just heard from Dr. Richard Boyer, who's among the many doctors relying on ventilators to keep COVID-19 patients alive. And we're going to come back to him later in this episode. But first, I wanted to chat with Sarah Morrison, who's a reporter for Recode and who's written about the U.S. ventilator supply. So, Sarah, how many ventilators does the country have? The estimate that I've seen the most is about 172,000, which is like the federal stockpile of 12,000, and then like about 160,000 throughout the country. Sarah, how many ventilators will we actually need to get through this? 
So the number that we actually need depends on a couple factors. Uh, the American Hospital Association estimates that about a million people are going to need a ventilator over the course of this. And that, that doesn't mean that we're going to need a million ventilators. Um, it just means that if we spread out how many people, you know, have it and how many people need them, you know, 170,000 might be enough. But you can see how like a surge of patients would really overwhelm the system and then we wouldn't have enough. Another reason why we're having so many worries about the supply is not only the number, but also how long the average patient needs them who has COVID-19. Non-COVID patients are normally on ventilators for three to four days. COVID patients are on ventilators for 11 to 21 days. Think about that. So you don't have the same turnaround uh, in the number of ventilators. So this has everything to do with this whole flatten the curve situation, right? Exactly. If one million people need a ventilator at once, we're screwed. Right, exactly. What happens if we run out of ventilators? Well, um, I don't want to, you know, predict the future, but I mean, the simple fact is that if somebody needs a ventilator and they can't get one, they die. So a shortage of them would mean that people who wouldn't have died uh, will. So then you get into who gets one and who doesn't. Um, and in Italy, uh, there are reports that they have had to ration ventilators in this way. And that means doctors are forced to pick, you know, who gets one, who doesn't, who lives and who dies. Um, in situations like that, you know, typically the people who have the greatest chance of success are the ones who are most likely to get one, which means that, you know, people who might be older, people who are already sick with something else, they would likely be the people who, who didn't get one. Um, and that's in Italy. In America, we've had a possible preview of this. Um, a Michigan hospital system, a draft of their policy in the case of a ventilator shortage was leaked recently. It's not an active policy right now, but it basically said essentially this. They're going to give the ventilators to the people who have the greatest chance of survival. And that could mean removing them from people who they don't think are going to make it or not giving them to people who they don't think are going to survive with them. Okay, so if estimates are correct and one million people in the U.S. might end up needing to be put on a ventilator at some point, how is that going to work? Well, right now, um, basically, every company that can possibly make a ventilator is trying to make as many as possible to fill any potential storage. So we have, you know, like major companies like GE Healthcare and Medtronic and, uh, and Ventech pairing up with car companies to try to use their, you know, their factories and their access to supply chain to really increase the amount of ventilators that these companies can make. It's GM, Tesla, Ford. In England, I think Rolls-Royce is uh, trying to make ventilators there for them. Could you actually tell me a little bit about the whole Tesla thing? Because it, it's not clear to me if the, whether they're actually going to make ventilators or not. Yeah. Uh, in the beginning, it just looked like Elon Musk said, yeah, we'll make a bunch for people who need them. And then he kind of walked that back a bit. Uh, and then the most recent thing I've heard is that Tesla is indeed working with Medtronic to try to produce Medtronic ventilators in some of their factories. So it sounds like there are a lot of companies working on this right now. Uh, is is that actually going to work out for us? The, the fact is there's there's hundreds of parts in a ventilator and they can be sourced from, you know, like a hundred different suppliers. So it's, it's a huge undertaking to increase that supply chain. 
And then you're also competing with all the other companies around the world who are also trying to get these parts for these machines. Um, and then you have to get all the right equipment to produce them So, and people who know how to make them. So the New York Times said that it's going to cost GM several hundred million dollars just to get one of its factories set up to, to produce these. Mm. So you can imagine the real scale of how complicated it's going to be to really pump out these machines and how long it, it could take. So rough time estimate. How long before we start seeing some of these ventilators enter hospitals? So GM Ventec partnership and the Ford uh, GE Healthcare partnership, they're now saying that they think they're going to have some ventilators made by the end of April. Um, they're not going to have 100,000 of them made by then. Ford, uh, I believe, said it thinks it can make 1,500 by then, and it's hoping it can ramp up to 50,000 by July. And these are them saying that they can do this, but like obviously until they're you know out there and done, we, we won't know for sure. Sarah, when you look at those numbers, does that add up to you? You know, it doesn't, it doesn't look great, right? But I don't want to scare people too, too much because it really depends on how many we need at one time. Right now, it seems like we're relying on a lot of private companies to try and fix this whole ventilator issue. And I'm wondering, did the federal government ever think before this pandemic that we might at some point arrive in a place where we might need a lot more? Did they ever try to make these kinds of partnerships and these kinds of deals happen earlier? Yes, they have. Um, they've known for some time that if something like this happened, uh, they would possibly not have enough. So they've uh, contracted out with, you know, tried to find a company that could make several sort of cheaper ventilators to add to the federal stockpile. They were able to get a company called Newport to make them. Uh, the New York Times actually reported recently that that deal ended up producing no ventilators because Newport was bought by a larger company and then that just didn't happen. I know in 2015, uh, they tried again uh, to get another company to make them. Um, the FDA, I believe, approved those devices uh, last July. But ProPublica reported this week that we don't have a timetable for those yet. And they're actually selling those same devices um, to other places. So to other countries? Yes, I believe that they are selling them to other countries and even other suppliers in America. Okay, so how has President Trump been dealing with all of this? Are you able to guarantee it, to assure these states, these hospitals, that everybody who needs a ventilator will get a ventilator? Uh, look, look, don't be a cutie pie, okay? You know, everyone who needs one. I think he's been dealing with the ventilator situation pretty much the same as he's dealt with every situation um, with this pandemic, which is sort of issued a series of like conflicting and confusing statements about them. Uh, he's sometimes he denies that that we need more or that we don't have enough. But I have a feeling that uh, a lot of the numbers that are being said in some areas are just bigger than they're going to be. I don't believe you need 40,000 or 30,000 ventilators. Sometimes he says we'll have 100,000 of them in the next 100 days. But within the next 100 days, we will either make or get in some form over 100,000 additional units. And He's recently accused hospitals of hoarding them, of governors of asking for far more than they'll ever need. We do have a problem of hoarding. We have some healthcare workers, some hospitals, frankly, individual hospitals. And 
hospital chains. We have them hoarding uh, equipment, including ventilators. We have to release those ventilators. And uh, he spent basically the end of last week yelling at GM, saying they were making it too difficult for, for us to get the ventilators that we need. This national stockpile, is it now being distributed uh, across the U.S.? Yeah, I believe 4,000 of those ventilators were sent to uh, New York. I've also seen reports that they uh, don't all work correctly. So we might need to be spending some time um, getting those to work right. I think I saw like 170 ventilators were sent to California and those also had some issues. So they had to fix those up too. So I'm not really sure how dependable this federal stockpile is at this point, just given what we've seen of some of the ventilators that have come out of it. It sounds like this has a really long tail. All these deals sound like we're not going to be seeing a significant number of ventilators in the next few weeks and and maybe even in the next few months. What does that tell you in terms of the way that infections have been going in the United States? So I see I've seen this referred to as like a second wave solution and I I think that's pretty accurate. We may not get enough in time for this sort of first big wave of cases we're seeing. We might get them in time for, you know, a second surge of cases. And there are things that we can do to, you know, flatten the curve and make this much less of a possibility. Right. So if people stay home and limit their contact with others as much as possible, there's a chance that these ventures could actually really help. If they don't do that and they socialize with a lot of people, then these numbers just won't be enough. Yeah. I mean, in the end, it's really up to us. The ventilator shortage is indicative of another issue. These devices are complicated to build and they're expensive. But remember Dr. Richard Boyer, the anesthesiologist that you heard from at the top of this episode? Well, he's working on that problem. That's after the break. This is Reset. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering, so you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected, and 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I work in the surgical ICU as an anesthesiology resident on teams treating both surgical patients and medical patients during this crisis. So I have right now one patient on my service that has COVID confirmed and one patient that is being tested. When Dr. Richard Boyer goes into work these days, he's got a lot on his mind. I think a lot about protecting myself, about taking care of patients that have COVID. At the same time, I'm thinking about also my wife who's at home that's pregnant and making sure that I don't bring uh, the virus home with me. To avoid that, he takes precautions. I've been just very careful going home in different clothes than I wear into work. I've been basically stripping down when I walk into the house, um, jumping into a shower and making sure that I'm using Purell, using hand sanitizer, and just um, making sure I don't track anything out of the hospital. But a few weeks ago, Dr. Boyer was put in quarantine because he'd been exposed to a COVID-19 patient in the operating room. And it was during that quarantine period that he had an idea. When I was sitting at home, it was very difficult to just stay there while my co-residents were basically risking their health and safety, treating patients every day, and I couldn't help. I was a uh, medical device engineer in my past life, and I came up with this idea that quickly took off within my residency program with residents that had experience in medical device design and engineering. Hmm. And uh, that's how it started. Our project is called the COVID-19 Challenge. And it's a open innovation grand challenge to design a rapidly deployable minimum viable ventilator for COVID-19. So when you say rapidly deployable and, and minimum viable, what do you mean? The ventilators, as we spoke about, that are in the ICU are very complicated. Mm-hmm. They cost twenty dollars to $30,000. And so those, when I think about a product that can make it into production very quickly and to get around the world, it's not in my mind, what we have currently in the ICU. So what we're trying to do is challenge design teams around the world to develop what we're considering the minimum viable ventilator for COVID-19 in partnership with clinical and industry experts that know what specific functions need to exist in this ventilator. Okay, so it kind of sounds like what you're doing is saying, hey world, hey engineers, Here are the standards, the minimum standards that you need to meet in order to create ventilators that could help COVID-19 patients. Here's what you need to try and achieve. That's right. We are telling them this is what you need to achieve, but we're also giving them a pathway for how to actually get that from a design that they've built as standalone engineers into a production level design that can actually be approved by the FDA and put out into the market very quickly. Okay, so I want to ask you more about that. But before we dig into your project, can you explain to me what a ventilator does? They push air into the lungs. 
they let air passively come out of the lungs. We don't actively suck air out of the lungs. It oxygenates the air that's going in. It's filtering the air as well as humidifying, and it monitors the volumes and pressures that are being delivered. In COVID-19, there's acute lung injury, which means they require a very specific type of ventilation that's been used in acute lung injury for the last 20 to 30 years. That's called ArtsNet ventilation. Is it is it like because these lungs are, you know, there are dead cells accumulating and fluid accumulating in the lungs, is it that you need to be extra gentle, so you need an extra gentle ventilator? That's right. We need a very low volume to prevent any additional injury on top of the uh, the ARDS, or acute respiratory distress syndrome, that's caused by COVID-19. And not all ventilators can do that. That's right. All right. So this COVID-19 challenge, you're trying to get a bunch of engineers to come up with designs for a ventilator that can help a COVID-19 patient. But that's also a lot cheaper to make than a conventional ventilator, right? What are you telling engineers to make that happen? We're giving them up front a design brief and design requirements to guide them toward a safe and reliable design. Hmm. Okay. And and so that means giving them standards for, for what, what kind of parts they should use, what amount of oxygen they should be pumping into people's lungs. Like, is it, like what are we talking about here? So what we're doing is laying out what does this device need to meet in terms of the pressures it delivers, the types of design features that you need to include, mm-hmm. like monitoring of specific pressures, monitoring of volumes, and then... How do you actually build that to be a reliable system that will actually get through the FDA regulatory requirements? So it, it's very much, it's sort of like giving engineers around the world a recipe book. That's right. What's the timeline for this challenge? The timeline is hopefully within the next 60 to 90 days to have a design that we're then bringing into design transfer to a manufacturer. What that means is in parallel to design teams around the world developing their ventilator design, we're going to be working with the FDA, the VA in the background, finding what information we need to put together to make this a safe design that can be approved. You know, it's funny because having reported on on health for a number of years previously, I know that 90 days is rapid fast. I know that it is lightning fast. And at the same time, if if it's just getting a, even a, a design ready for manufacturing in 90 days, like by the time that happens, thousands of people will have died. Unfortunately, it's a place that we're in. We're trying to build this for the first peak in COVID-19 for the United States. We're also thinking about our global community and where this might be able to be helpful even later on after we hit our peak in places that may have less resources. Okay, so... Even though this might not be as fast as the medical community really needs to have these ventilators, and this is still super fast, you know that this will be really useful down the line. That's right. What's the status of your project right now? We just released yesterday the standards for ventilator development. We released a design brief that discusses the requirements that we feel as experts in mechanical ventilation are required for a minimum viable ventilator for COVID-19. Why do you think it's important to release these standards out into, into the world like this? I think everyone is hungry to help with this issue. While 
this may not end up being a DIY or a hacked together device that ends up making it to be the final solution for ventilation. I don't think there's anything better than having these innovative minds think and stew on this problem and come up with maybe even one part that ends up being helpful in this challenge Mm -hmm. that someone like Medtronic or Tesla or one of these large companies that are building ventilators say, hey, you know, that's something that we could very quickly use to ramp up our production. So can we really do this safely? This accelerated timeline, do you really think we can do this safely? I think if we stick to the bare minimum of what needs to be in this ventilator, I think we can produce this as long as we're aligned with regulatory bodies bodies around the world and have their support. How urgent is this? How badly do we need this? Just hearing reports from Italy that patients were being determined whether they would or wouldn't get mechanical ventilation for pneumonia, which is a reversible condition, Mm -hmm. I would say it's as urgent as it can be. Dr. Richard Boyer is an anesthesiology resident at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston and the founder of the COVENT-19 Challenge. I'm Ariel Jimross, and this is Reset. We publish episodes three times a week, on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Sundays. So if you haven't subscribed to the pod yet, by all means, do so. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or in your favorite podcast app. And if you like what you hear, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find the show. If you want to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at ADRS. You can also reach the Reset team by emailing reset at vox.com. We'll be back on Sunday. Later, nerds. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.